to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI Cast. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Brocco Diagnostics. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another MRI cast. This is episode 29. We are glad that you're here. We want to thank Brocco Diagnostic again for their unrestricted educational grant. Uh, makes these MRI casts possible. On this episode, we're going to be addressing some pediatric topics. And with me is my ever-present uh, co-host, Kristen Harrington. Hello, Kristen. Ever-present. Ever-present, ever-present, ever-present. I am here. Thanks for having me again, Bill. You seem to always have me on these things. Uh, there we go. Stuff, you know, huh? it's just, you know, just can't <laughs> get you to say no. And uh, <laughs> joining us. Uh, for this episode is Dr. Jeannie Kwan uh, from uh, UT Southwestern in Texas. Hello, Jeannie. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Uh, not welcome. Thank you for welcoming me, and, and thank you for this opportunity. Oh, now we're glad to, glad to have you. Um, before we get started, Jeannie, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I already said you're UT Southwestern, but you can repeat that. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and and maybe a little bit about your background, and then we'll, we'll get started. Sure, happy to do so. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a pediatric radiologist, and I've been at UT Southwestern now for, gosh, it's it's been 17 years, and it's gone by fast. I wow. Came, yeah. Um, I can't, it's, it's easy to, for me to calculate, because my daughter was just born when I moved here, and so I know how old she is, and I know how many years I've worked here. Um, but I came as a fellow uh, to do my pediatric fellowship and uh, that's a one-year fellowship. And then after that, I stayed on as faculty at UT Southwestern. And in the time that I've been here, um, I've grown with the university and grown with the, with the Children's Hospital and have been involved in a number of, of efforts over the years. Um, I have a strong interest and background in quality improvement and in radiology that seems to oftentimes inevitably lead into informatics. So I'm also board certified in informatics. Um, I just actually recently completed my requirements for an MBA degree because that also ties into um, workflows and efficiencies uh, in the hospital and, and trying to um, advocate for you know the latest tools that help the radiologists take care of patients. Um, so that's an area that I'm also very interested in expanding and recently, I um, was just appointed the interim division chief. Our, our fearless previous, inter uh, previous division chief had announced his retirement from that position. And so I've been in this role for about a month. All right. Congratulations. Let's everybody give her a hand for that. All right. Good job. It's, we're going to, like I said, we're going to talk about pediatrics. And Kristen, I don't know if we've ever actually told us, well, you have a fairly extensive pediatric background from your clinical time. Uh, working I thought you were going to uh, talk about all the kids I had. But. Well, no, no, all that too. But uh, the uh, 
Yeah, I'm from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I was there um, in the 90s, and then I was there for 14 years, a PRN as well. And um, so I have done a lot with pediatrics in general as far as MRI is related and home life related. I've done a lot with pediatrics. <laughs> I've also done a lot with research at UT Southwestern while I was an employee of a large um, corporation. And so I spent a lot of time um, in Texas working with you guys in my 20s, which was just a few years. Oh, the other week? Yes, just the other yeah. week. I know we just celebrated my 30th. No, um, it was a long, long time ago. But I was trying to do the math, actually, which I'm not too good at right now because it's later in the evening here. But um, actually, it was um, you may have still been there, but I would have been a definitely a different area doing some different types of research with breast imaging. Um, so have spent a good bit of time there as well. Well, what we want to uh, start with is uh, let's. A big part of pediatric uh, MRI has has always been uh, the use of gadolinium-based contrast agents, and uh, over the over the past, uh, well, you know, originally when gadolinium-based contrast agents came out, I mean, it was you know everybody was getting you know would give GAD with no problem, and then. You know, with the advent of NSF, uh, people started looking at it a little more closely, particularly the stability aspect of it. And in NSF, we pretty much uh, figured out how not to uh, cause NSF. And then people have been looking at it for the last 10 years or so, uh, looking at the issue dealing with the stability of the agents. And this is interesting because stability has always been an issue. It's just that we just didn't think any. We just didn't think there was anything problematic about the stability because most of the agents would come out. But we've always known there's always been a little bit retained. And um, in the early days of uh, the gadolinium-based contrast agents, uh, the very first agent that was available in the U.S. was a linear molecule, uh, Magnavist. And then one of the next agents to come around was the uh, macrocyclic uh, prohance. And so there was all, there began the discussion of linear versus macrocyclic and the stability of it. But as I remember uh, reading papers about this, nobody could point a finger as to anything that, you know, was a problem caused by this. But the macrocyclic or the, the issue with stability, you know, is still hanging around and people are still thinking about that. And especially, especially with kids. So, the fact that macrocyclic agents are kind of what people tend to prefer, that's, you know, kind of still there. And, and I think it's, it carries a lot of weight. Jeannie's not, not been near uh, experience as well that when, when looking at contrast agents from a pediatric standpoint, one of the characteristics that they like is macrocyclic. Is, is that what you have seen? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, so in peds, Safety is is a huge issue, right? And and we tend to lag behind, or I, I don't know if lag is maybe the best word to put it, but sort of watch and see how things develop on the adult side, and then you know once we're sort of sufficiently convinced, then then things kind of tend to translate over to the to pediatric side. But certainly, um, the safety element is 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 something that everyone is super hyper acutely aware of, especially you know with new 
new technologies, new medications, drugs, et cetera. And so that would include contrast agents as well. And what's so interesting about this agent, um, the gadapiplanol, which is Vuey um, that we're talking about here, you know, it is macrocyclic, which is on the stability. That's what you're looking for is for a high stability agent. Um, but it also is already approved this early on for pediatrics above the age of two years of, or, or greater. And so I just found that to be phenomenal that it's already out there. They know the stability metrics are in place that we can go ahead and start using this agent in pediatric patients that are the age of two or older. So, and I want to just link this back to a couple of things. And I think they're, well, because probably there are a couple of reasons. First of all, yes, high stability we know is macrocyclic. We, we've got that in place. It's highly stable. I mean, think about it, Bill, what's the stability against Doderim and Clariscan? I mean, it's it's very highly stable. Yeah, there, you know, there's two metrics for that, but the one metric that most people look at is the kinetic stability, which is the rate or the speed at which uh, an agent yeah. disassociates, particularly in a, uh, and it's measured in a highly chemically stressful environment, a pH of one, because if they didn't do that, many of these literally would take years to disassociate in, at normal pH. So to, to get, um, you know, good, you know, measurements while we're all still alive, then they then they put them under chemically stressful uh, uh, conditions. And the uh, kind of the best comparison I've seen to this is that if you look at from one paper, if you looked at the disassociation half life uh, for Dotarim slash Clariscan, which are the same yes. uh, agent or chemical compound the uh it's it's like um uh, four days something like that um and the um dissociation half-life for uh gadapiclinol uh from uh, brocco cells as brocco sells it is uh 20 so it's like uh five times greater than the closest agent which would be dodorim and clariscan you know and the other thing that when you were talking about uh, coming at, that it came out with these pediatric indications is that it also very quickly was classified as a group two agent uh, by the ACR. And I'm, I would have to imagine that is mostly due to its, or almost all due to the extremely high stability. Well, in, pe in pediatrics, though, I mean, okay, so we were just talking about it's got the high stability. So, yeah, it's optimal that it be approved as quickly as possible for pediatrics, right? High stability, that's what we want in the pediatric environment. And um, obviously, we want the best agent out there. We'll talk about relaxivity in, in just a few minutes, which it has that and beyond, to infinity and beyond. Um, okay. It's got that going on for it. Um, it's actually a lower dose, not just a lower volume, it's a lower dose. Now, um, Jeannie, what does that mean to you, an actual lower dose given to a, given to a pediatric patient? For, without losing any of the effect. Absolutely. Or still getting more, be honest. Yeah, right. I, I mean, so again, I mean, in general, right? So one of the principles that we talk about in pediatric radiology is the ALARA principle, and that stands for as low as reasonably achievable. Um, that 
usually is used in the context of radiation, CT radiation or X-ray radiation. But uh, in general, you know, lower dose of anything first do no harm. So whatever we can do to you know maximize uh, safety, that that's always going to be something that gets a lot of attention on the pediatric side. So that would include lower doses of contrast agent or gadolinium specifically as well. You know, I had heard a presentation, um, I don't know by whom, I can't recall here, been the last little bit, and also used the ALARA uh, acronym uh, and principle, talking about radiation or talking about gadolinium dose. The um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the relaxivity because I want to come come back to that again as it pertains, certainly as it pertains to the pediatric population. So for those listening who aren't too solid on what we mean by relaxivity, just a little brief uh, refresher here. Relaxivity is the property of all gadolinium contrast agents that expresses the amount of change in the relaxation rate of water-based hydrogen protons. So uh, basically, you can think of it as the effect for a given dose of that agent. And, uh, you know, we don't see gadolinium. We see the effect of gadolinium, and that effect is the relaxivity, how much it alters this relaxation time. Now, we've had plenty of papers that have been published over the last decade or more uh, showing high relaxivity, uh, particularly with uh, one agent in particular, Multihance. But we've also had uh, in the market, it's no longer available, but, but this was well known for its relaxivity. And that was a, a blood pool agent called Ablavar. It had uh, relaxivity values much higher than, than Multihance. And it has been shown that if you double the relaxivity of an agent, all things else being equal, if you double the relaxivity of an agent, then that gives you essentially the same effect as if you doubled the gadolinium dose. And there are studies, uh, again, using comparing multi-hance to standard relaxivity agents that show that a half dose of multi-hance would compare to a full dose of a standard agent. Now, here comes along, uh, got a Piclinol, Vueway. Uh, its relaxivity is two to three times greater than all the other agents. And uh, there's several reasons for that, but it just involves more water. I mean, that's really the bottom line, a main reason why this thing has more of an effect is it involves more water. So you can give a, a, a lower dose. And so the standard dose as Kristen mentioned, is labeled dose is 0.05 millimole per kilogram, which is literally half as much gadolinium, milligrams of gadolinium, half as much as any other agent. Um, and and I think this speaks well, uh, Jeannie, would you not agree, to a pediatric population where, you know, the ACR says the lowest dose necessary for you know, to obtain a diagnosis. Of course, that's great for them to say because who knows what the proper dose is <laughs> up front. But if you know if you know how much power you have in the agent, then you, I would think, have more confidence in that dosing. And again, like I said, from a pediatric standpoint, um, I think this does play well into that Alara uh, uh, principle. Would you not agree? Yeah, yes, I, I do agree with that. 
what what other I mean other than um, safety concerns? Uh, obviously, in, in MRI, we have lots of things for safety. But does it ever come up a concern for a pediatric population that, depending on the patient, depending on the the uh, uh, disease process and that, that you may have patients that are going to be receiving multiple doses over uh, a lifetime, particularly and, and particularly in their younger years of life. Uh, yeah, that that's definitely something that we would take into consideration. Um, I mean, more and more, I think we're people are looking at contrast agents in GAD. So, for example, um, we we have we we see quite a number of osteomyelitis cases, and a lot of those patients will have an MR scan done. And historically, I think everyone kind of just assumed you need to have you need to give gadolinium if you're looking for osteomyelitis or pretty much any type of infection or in, infl- inflammatory process. Um, but one of the things that we've developed here at, at Children's in Dallas and with UT Southwestern um, is a protocol whereby our MSK, you know, orthopedic surgeons um, very, you know, w- with a very sort of um, well-integrated multidisciplinary group have been able to uh, examine and assess patients beforehand to to be able to you know determine sort of what the 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 level of suspicion for osteomyelitis is um, like a pre MRI probability of going to surgery and what their specific questions are and so um, with this new sort of pathway that we have we've been able to cut down on the amount of studies the number of studies that we do with gadolinium. By far, so not only does that decrease the the gadolinium administration, but also the, the amount of time on the scanner because now you're not doing post contrast scans or sequences. So they're um, just using STIR instead of using and FATSAT traditional FATSAT instead of using and then not giving gadolinium. Correct, correct. I'm not not in every single case, but in the majority of cases, that is the case, and that's again because we have an orthopedic surgeon who started this program, who's, who's very um, hands-on and involved, he'll actually sit at the scanner and um, see the images as the patient comes off. And the, the other part of the protocol is that not only are we, you know, scanning shorter, less sedation, but a single sedation is, an, is another one of the huge benefits of that. So if the kid does need to go to the OR, then they continue with that same anesthetic and then bring them directly to the OR. So that's why you know, he's at the scanner. Um, yeah, that's unusual that you guys are doing that. Um, I've always thought it was, and I'm not a radiologist, but a little bit overkill, all that you have to do on a child that's about to go to the OR because they are febrile and, you know, on the stir, which is the first sequence that we do typically, and you see all of this glucky stuff that I'm not allowed to say that I see it, but I just show it to the radiologist and then they still have all these sequences they want you to do with a child under sedation. Um, that it's so obvious what's going on, um, you know, I think that's great that you're able to do something in an abbreviated format with the um, with being able to take them without having to give them contrast all the time. And so that does take that away. Now, going back to, to contrast, and I, I think that's great for these osteomyelitis cases. I always thought that was a little bit of, you know, well overdone, let's just say. 
Nobody likes their steak that way, right? Um, Nobody wants that. But for the cases that are coming back, let's let's go to populations of patients that have um, that. Unfortunately, in pediatrics, we do have a lot that have cancer that have, you know, tumors, and they're they're back on a regular basis. You know, what what are you guys doing as far as you know trying to minimize you know how much gadolinium they're getting? I mean, you know, how's everything going with that? Yeah, I mean, I will say everything is sort of a, a risk benefit, right? So, I mean, if we need to give GAD to be able to assess appropriately, then we will. Um, you know, if it if it's going to make a difference, right? If if there's still residual tumor burden or how how much of a burden there is, we'll give it because you know the the benefits outweigh the risks. But if there's the opportunity to give less, then then certainly um, that would be something that we would we would pursue. You know, one of the things that came to mind, I'm just sitting here scribbling down some, some notes and stuff. The, uh, the word that came to mind and and this goes across the board in MRI, you know, in general is tailoring the study, uh, for that particular patient. So the patient gets, uh, it's like Liberty mutual commercial. You only pay for what you need, Uh, you know? So the patient gets only gets, you know, what they need tailor that study. And certainly there is no lower dose of gadolinium than zero. And uh, that should be, you know, something people really across the board, you know, what, regardless of your choice of agent, um, you know, the risk benefit thing, does the patient need uh, this gadolinium? Now the, the risk, and, and this is a little, maybe this is a little off, off track here just a little bit, but I don't know, Jenny, since you're a doctor, uh, tell me if this seems logical. Um, we often have uh, discussions. In fact, I've got a webinar coming up here uh, in a couple of days. Uh, people have some questions about, you know, adverse events. And, uh, you know, anytime you give uh, anything inject anything in the bloodstream with an osmolality higher than plasma, you, you've got a risk of some sort of, of an adverse event. Most are mild, but, you know, they, they can happen. They're very, very rare. But, uh, you know, again, I was talking with a site that was, you know, talking with me about their issues with this. And uh, one of the radiologists said to me, you know, well, one of the things that's helped is actually we were giving less GAD. And I said, well, what do you mean you're not giving GAD when you need it? He goes, no, we're actually just not giving gadolinium to the patients who don't need it. And so, you know, it's it's like, okay, that's that's a risk. If the patient doesn't need gadolinium and, and in, you know, it's a pediatric patient, but if they don't need gadolinium, any patient, they don't need it, don't give it to them because it's that risk benefit, right? Jenny, I mean, right. you're, sure. there's a risk, but there's no benefit. Right, right. If they don't need it, why give it, right? Right. So I, so I think that speaks well for, for tailoring the studies. And then there was another thing you mentioned, and um, Chris and I, like to get your viewpoint on this, we're talking about sedation. Um, you know, sedation in and of itself carries risk with it. And so, you know, you'd like to tailor the study, use techniques that allow you to try to get the information you need with minimal to no sedation as well. And if you've got somebody sedated, you don't want to leave them under sedation for an extended period of time. And not everybody 
like UT Southwestern has the personnel there when they are sedating patients to adequately monitor or things like that. So, Jeannie, I'd like to hear a little more about that in terms of trying to minimize the exposure to a, to a pediatric patient from a sedation standpoint. Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. And you know, thanks for thanks for introducing this topic because this is something that um, we're very sort of passionate about. If we can minimize the sedation or eliminate the need for it altogether, you know, that's considered a win. So one of the things that I think is a, is a benefit for pediatric patients to be imaged in a pediatric institution is that a lot of times, you know, children's hospitals will have child life specialists um, on hand. And so if, if people are not familiar with child life specialists, um, they're, they're people that are trained in child development and um, how to communicate with, with kids and how to prepare them for, you know, an unfamiliar experience they're about to undergo their first MRI or their first radiology, radiology exam, whatever it may be, and, and help them to, to know what to expect and give them some coping, um, some coping tools, uh, some distraction, you know, in younger kids, they'll distract them with books and lights and toys so that we can get a good study. And so one of the things that we've done in our department over the past couple of years is really increase the amount of child life specialist support that we have in our department. Our goal is that every patient that comes through is going to somehow interface with child life. Well, may maybe not x-rays, but, but definitely for the, um, you know, that the higher, um, you know, the cross-sectional imaging and, and certainly all of our MRI patients. Now, do you use GA or deep um, sedation techniques like um, a bolus of propofol and you level them out? Or, I mean, how, how is that managed? So all of our anesthesia is, is managed by anesthesiologists and, okay. and GA primarily. Yep. Okay. So, so, so you do more GA than you do deep sedation, for lack of a better word for it. Correct. I, they're general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. You know, it's kind of interesting. I had uh, uh, in my last real clinical job, uh, and I guess time changes and stuff, and and, and things progress. Uh, you know, they they really tried to avoid the GA, but the the reality is, uh, if if you need to get the study, you need to get the study. And uh, especially, like I said, if you're going to go, and, and if you don't mind, I'll step back to the to gadolinium thing for a second because it, it did bring something to mind. Um, in in view of all this, you know, if you if the if a kid's sedated, you know, giving them a uh, an injection of gadoliniums, uh, you know, typically not a problem. I mean, you've got the IV started anyway, but it can be it can be very traumatic for. Uh, a child to have to have an IV inserted just because you're going to give them some, you know, a dose of gadolinium, uh, right? I mean, I, that would be something that is just, you know, why they need all that support, I guess. You know what? And Bill, we've discussed this. Have we ever heard of a, any type of deleterious effect of anyone that was under uh, general anesthesia that gave, was given a, an administration of gadolinium-based contrast agent? That's really kind of an interesting thing. This comes up about adverse events uh, all the time. Interesting. I've, and I've never heard of it. I, 
I don't know. I've never seen it. Jeannie, what's your experience with that? You know, people, the majority of adverse events are physiologic. Physiologic, you know, can occur for a number of reasons. But the number of uh, any type of adverse events from contrast media, gadolinium-based contrast media, when a patient's under general anesthesia, I, I bet are very, very low. I mean, I, in all the years I was working with it, I never saw one. Right. Yeah, no, I'm not aware of any any instances where the gadolinium and the anesthesia in combination um, resulted in an adverse event. Is that what you're talking about? No, it's okay. So, so we get, we get, uh, we, we in MRI have become uh, contrast wimps over the years. You know, we used, when I, when I was in x-ray training in the seventies and in the early eighties in x-ray, because of the type of iodinated contrast agent we were using, people would have adverse events all the time and everybody would know how to treat them. Uh, we treated them in x-ray, actually. Um, and, you know, unless they were, like, really significant. And um, today, you know, you hardly ever have an adverse event. And, and in reality, um, you know, when you were going through your fellowship, and when I, I bet you went a long time between seeing adverse events. Um, you know, they just, they just rarely occur. And so uh, when they do occur... People get text, text especially, get all freaky about this, thinking it shouldn't occur, and uh, therefore, you know, say, well, you know, what agent can we use that won't cause an adverse event? But what Chris and I were talking about is there's a lot to do, I think, uh, in, an, in an adult population, there's a lot to do with adverse events from anxiety, um, that sort of thing that can trigger these uh, physiologic type reactions. But it's, it's just interesting always to point out that uh, you don't see those uh, typically when a patient is under general anesthesia. And, and I think that's because most of them are, are triggered from not any type of, a, of an adverse event. That's, that's what I was, that's, that's I think what Kristen was referring to, right? Yeah, Kristen? I just find it to be very interesting. I mean, I just know that most of ours are deep sedation um, at Children's Healthcare Atlanta. Again, I was there 14 years as a technologist, but um, I, I as needed PRN, but I was there for a lot of sedations. They were on three magnets and until three o'clock in the afternoon and then as needed. And they only did about six GA cases a week. So they're mostly, almost primarily deep sedation techniques. And we had a deep sedation group that handled them. Then we had an anesthesia group that was our own as well, but they just came down just for the few um, you know cases we had. But we never had any type of reaction um, to any of the patients that were um, under deep sedation or under general anesthesia. And so yeah. just not something I had, I'm just out there trying to see if it's ever happened, but it hasn't. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, I mean, and no, and then we're talking about, when we, when we get back to this agent, we got a piclinol, the view way from Bracco, we're talking about it's highly stable. It's a lower dosing we're giving to peds, which I know that Jeannie's going to say, I, she's all in on that, right? Lower dosing, it's a high stability agent. It's got high relaxivity, right? I mean, yeah. Yep. We're giving a lower dose, but we're still seeing a lot more. That's what relaxivity is in a bag. Bill made it sound all fancy. Okay, Bill, you're you're fancy on us tonight. But, I mean, you're, you're actually able to visualize more. And, I mean, that's, that's going to be a win-win in the pediatric community. Wouldn't you agree? Sure. Um, yeah, we actually, I don't, I don't 
know that I mentioned this, you know, prior to this conversation, but we actually just started using gadopiclinol in our hospital last week. And so our experience is very early, but so far what we've seen, you know, really clinically can't tell a difference um, that, that we're using a different contrast agent, um, but certainly all the other benefits, especially, you know, the lower dose, as you mentioned, the stability um, is, is a big reason why we decided to move in that, in that direction. And so um, I'm excited to see how things, you know, develop as, as we continue to gain more experience with it. Um, hopefully it'll be somewhat of a non-event, you know, in terms of, okay, it's safer and, and everyone's satisfied and the images are just as beautiful as they were before. And, and it's, it, there's, you know, no issue. That's what I'm hoping is going to happen. And uh, I think there's a high likelihood of that. You know, one of the things with the lower dose, um, and this is, this is kind of a technical thing, but one of the deals with a lower dose is that you are in fact giving a lower volume. Uh, you know, it's kind of kind of both. You're giving a lower volume, but it is is a lower dose. So uh, just to just to give it some, uh, I guess, clarity for folks listening that may not, may not be familiar with this, just so you can, uh, you know, have something to compare it to. Um, I'm no pediatric patient, so we're gonna I I. I would be a 20 ml person, right, for for a standard agent. So uh, let's just using those numbers. So for somebody my size, uh, you would be uh, giving, you know, 20 mLs of, let's say, ProAnts, uh, Dotorim, Clariscan, those agents. Uh, if you were using Gatavist, then you would be giving me 10 mLs. But you'd still be giving me the same number of gadolinium, same milligram of gadolinium, because it's double concentrated. And but you would be giving me a lower volume, <clears throat> just the same amount of gad. If you were dosing me standard dose with gadapiclinol agents, VUA, uh, you would be giving me uh, 10 mLs because the dose, 0.05 millimole per kilogram, is half 0.1. Uh, so you you are giving me a lower uh, half the number of, of gadolinium uh, milligrams, but it's also a low volume. Now, in in an adult patient, um, you know, going from twenty down to ten uh, might not be a really big change, but when you start getting down to smaller patients, and instead of giving somebody ten mLs, you're going to give them five mLs, and then let's go even smaller. So instead of giving them uh, five mLs, you're now going to give them two and a half mLs. And if you go even smaller, you can see how you're getting down to, to a very, very, very small volume. And where this can be um, challenging is in contrast-enhanced uh, studies, uh, dynamic contrast-enhanced studies, um, primarily vascular but uh, you could also have, for example, um, you know, body type uh, dynamic imaging, you know, from the liver, other other types of dynamic sequences, where you're you're doing a, a rapidly acquired acquisition and you're trying to match the bolus of GAD to the middle of the case space, and so you want it to last a little bit. But if you're only giving two or three mLs, 
that can be kind of challenging. And I know, Kristen, you've experienced this in your Yeah, I, uh, I have, definitely. Um, it's always a challenge. I know that there was a situation where we had, you know, a, a baby that was less than, you know, five kilograms. And so then when you're trying to do dosing for that, and you're looking about doing a contrast and enhanced study done dynamically, then you have to think about how are you going to, you know, how are you going to do how much saline along with the appropriate amount of gadolinium? Well, you know, you're going to be drawing up a, a smaller amount and then you're going to use your bolus and, you know, just going to chase it through. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I don't know, Jeannie, if, if you worked with, with VUA a lot, gadapiclinol, um, to, to speak to this, or if you've worked with the 3D contrast enhanced studies for vascular work or for anything like that. This case I'm talking about, they were looking whether it was a um, an, an aneurysm or a brain tumor. Um, it happened in a Wal Walmart parking lot, and it was, it was just a very sad situation. And um, so they wanted us to do it because everything – they used to be done like emergently really in CT is, it seems like the MRI at Children's Health Carolina kind of replaced that because of wanting to reduce the number of CTs that were done, unless it was something where there was too much metal due to other reasons. So they come over to MR and trying to figure out, you know, the ratios of how everything's going to be done. And then the specific dynamic contrast enhanced techniques that are going to be filling case based the most appropriately based upon the agent. And I find that the 4D techniques, um, you know, I just do what the, the radiologist asks for. But in those situations, um, I think that those might be the best way to go. Is that what you guys have been trying out right now? You may refer to you may refer to it as time resolved, four D time resolved, where you're doing rapid multiple three D acquisitions. Right. I mean, yeah. We so in our vascular studies, definitely, um, the, you know, the timing can be a significant issue. Um, actually, if if we're purely like looking at vessels, so for example, looking at patency of vessels, we have a number of patients who have multiple lines placed or. You know, we want to evaluate the portal vein um, in liver disease kids or maybe pre-transplant evaluation to, to study the vasculature. Um, what we've been using more lately is ferromoxetol. So, um, you know, an, an iron initially developed, well, approved as an iron supplement. Um, but the benefit of that is that it tends to, you know, it stays in circulation for, for many hours. And so if we're not trying to find like, if we're not looking at a mass and a lesion enhancement pattern of a lesion, but we're focusing on specifically vessels, the, the nice thing about that is it, it, it stays in circulation for a longer period of time. There, there are downsides to that as well. Um, we have to inject it very slowly and the patient is, is monitored, their vitals are monitored for, um, you know, half an hour uh, after the exam. There, so you know, it requires more nursing support, but that's one of the sort of ways that we've tried to improve our, our vascular diagnosis and evaluation. Well, I mean, surely like in the, in the past, uh, say even before, uh, the gadapiclinol agents, uh, you know, with, with any gadolinium agent, I'm sure there are babies that have, uh, you know, you'd only be giving them a couple of MLs of, <clears throat> I don't know, whatever agent you're using just simply because of their size. And, uh, 
is it at your at your shop if uh, if using a gadolinium based contrast agent, are they mixing the gadolinium in the in the gadolinium syringe in the injector? Are they mixing that with uh, saline, normal right. saline? Oh, I see. Okay, right. So. Um... Not typically, but certainly, you know, as we, as I mentioned, as we gain more experience with the the VUA and the and the smaller volume of contrast agent, that that is something that we've definitely talked about and potentially needing to do. Yeah. So, I mean, but on the flip side, the, the, you know, the these are some of our youngest patients are tiny babies with tiny vessels and tiny IV lines, and so if we could give a smaller volume, um, and you know, try to decrease our chance of like an IV infiltrate, for example. Um, right. Th- there are benefits to, to staying on the low side too, right? So um, that that's something that I think that we're we're still sort of figuring out what what the best approach would be. You know, you kind of I guess mitigate or dilute the benefit of the smaller volume by by adding the saline. Well, you know, it's what um, there. Uh... Chris and I were talking about this the other day, and we were working. Uh, uh, we were looking at some of the. We were looking at because I'm not a real big fan of the word dilution. You know, um, you know, talk about diluting the gadolinium in the in the syringe, and the reason for that is when you use the word dilution, it at least to me, the first thing that comes to mind is to diminish. You know, if you dilute something, you diminish the effect of it. And, and in reality, you're not because, again, the relaxivity is based on uh, the amount of gadolinium that's present and uh, how many water molecules it's going to interact with. And so whether or not you have, um, you know, topped that off to, to a 5 or 10 ml volume going in the syringe, you're still giving the same amount of gad and it's, and it's still got the same effect. And GE, so it's more just of a, so you know, we could not come up with a better word. And we went over this like twice, Googled it several yeah. times, looked up synonyms, dot, you know, everything. And so we, we really didn't know. I mean, we tried talking it through. We're like, no, we just, there's not a better word. So dilute is exactly what we came up well, with. But Bill, to your point, you're, you're accurate in what you're saying. Right, you're you're aug- actually more augmenting the volume, uh, so that it you know. So if you, for example, uh, one of the things that we've always recommended to people, if you're used to your timing, and I'm just going to make up a number here, uh, if you're used to your timing working out, if you're used to delivering a seven milliliter bolus of gadolinium followed by whatever of saline flush then you should keep that. And so if you go to an agent that uses a lower volume, then in order to keep that seven mil, seven milliliter bolus coming out of the contrast side of the syringe, then you simply add saline to the gadolinium part that brings it up to a seven milliliter bolus and just keep your timing the same, keep the, keep the flush the same, you know, everything's going to be the same. And, and again, you're delivering that relaxivity, uh, you know, the, the same timing. So for those of you out there that are playing around with lower volumes for, for whatever reason, because, you know, you know, VUA is not the only ones where you'd be given a lower volume. 
Um, that's one thing to, to consider. Now, before I, before I get off of this, um, haven't had the chance to ask a uh, radiologist this, a physician this. So, Jenny, you drew the lucky straw here. Um, <clears throat> one of the things, especially in pediatrics, and, and I know this has been Kristen's observation, is that going back to nausea and vomiting, so we're talking about you know, older pediatric patients that are not, not sedated. Uh, one of the things that can trigger nausea uh, in patients, and I understand particularly in pediatrics for some reason, is normal saline. A good big bolus of normal saline may cause a little bit of nausea and vomiting. Uh, Jeannie, is that something you've experienced? Yeah, uh, we, we do see that from time to time. Yeah, it's just saline. You wouldn't think that it would, you know, cause that, that kind of effect. But in some kids, it seems to do that. So, yes. You know, and, and it's it's likely because, and again, I'm getting dangerously close to being out of my lane here, uh, but it's, it's because, uh, you know, it has that... Uh, particles that you're putting in and it just creates this physiologic response. People can get uh, funky taste in your mouth, flushing, that sort of thing. So across all spectrum of patients, part of this nausea that can occur, especially when you're following uh, an injection with a bolus of saline, which we do a fair amount of times nowadays, could actually be just the saline itself. And, um, the reason I said that is because I was doing a panel discussion and the guy uh, sitting next to me was a pharmacist. And this panel discussion was talking about different formulations of gadolinium-based contrast agents and all that kind of stuff. And, and for somehow the topic came around to the saline flush. And what the pharmacist said to me was, you know what, what you ought to try using is sterile water. And of course, I hadn't heard the term sterile water since back when I was in the cath lab back in my uh, teenage years, early 20s. But, Gene, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, because sterile water is just that, sterile water. It doesn't have the saline in it. Right. You know, and, and he says it's, it's a lot less likely to, a less lower osmolar load, right, in the vascular system. Sure. Well, I, I don't have any experience with that, but. I mean, is there a point where it's too low, the osmolar load? If you're just injecting water into a vein, I, I don't know. Well, no. I mean, what I was saying was use that as flush instead uh, of normal saline, well, right? Yeah. I, I Honestly, I, that's, that would be something that I'd want to look more into. Um, haven't done I that. I mean, it sounds, it sounds interesting, and, it, and I'm, I guess I'm correct in saying he is correct, right, that that would probably elicit a lower response seems then. like it could be or i don't i mean i'm this is you know you mentioned out of your lane this is out of my lane too but half normal saline you know i, I i'd have i'd be interested in looking into that and seeing what other people you know if there are studies out there but yeah i mean i i don't know i mean i put this out to to several people i know kristen you told me that uh, in your days in pediatrics that they, you just avoid just doing a big flush of saline into somebody because they're they're likely going to puke right um, yeah, that's anecdotal information, but there are also papers. Um, I think the one that I use in one of my talks says that approximately 17% of the population was quality material. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was it was from quality information. No, 17% of people have an adverse um, event from 
just normal saline flush. And so I do believe that when people, you know, even if they're slamming in the gadolinium, which I don't agree with, I mean, we know there's a, what, three, five minute percolation time anyway, you shouldn't be just slamming it in and going in and starting to scan again. It's got to have time to get its way through the system, you know, but then you slam in the saline, who's to say which it was? Tomato, tomato, yeah. what happened? You know, what created this situation? And then especially where we were going back to this, you know, looking whether we're looking at vascular, whether we're looking at, you know, we're doing liver imaging, you know, for these pediatric patients, yes, we're giving, a, you know, a lower amount of GAD with the VUA agent, um, gadapiclinol. Um, we're giving a lower amount, so we will have to augment it. Bill, I like what you said. Is that what you use the word you used? Yeah, augment, yeah. yeah. That's the new word now. That really kind of okay. stuck with me, at least for five minutes. Um, okay. We're going to augment <laughs> it with saline. And but then we also have to look at the way we're you know filling case space, and I do believe that the 4D time resolved and just rapidly running the sequences back to back, so we don't have to be as concerned about when the contrast is reaching those central lines of case space. So everyone yeah. that's on here that's listening is like, oh, how are we going to be sure we, we're giving a lower amount, you know, with with gadapiclinol, and then we've augmented it with saline, and it's now going through a power injector. Use that 4D technique and then otherwise just be very careful with your timing when you're doing it. If you're doing another type of 3D um, contrast enhanced with eccentric time timing, I would say. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I think yeah. One thing that I might add to that, Kristen, and you kind of alluded to this, like if people are slamming in the GAD and slamming in the, the saline, the flush or the chaser is just the rate at which you administer it. Right. And so... Mm -hmm. Um, a many of our kids are, especially the little ones, they're, they're actually hand injected, um, just to be a little more careful and ginger about it. Um, and you know, they're small enough volumes that like, you know, the power injector maybe in some of those kids is a little bit overkill, but in any case, you know, we can inject it a little bit more slowly and, and hopefully diminish the likelihood of, of a patient developing an adverse reaction or an event. So, I mean, and, and a hand in, and a hand injection plays really well uh, into the the time resolved, the 4D tricks, tweets, twist, whatever you know, all the different vendor acronyms for it. Uh, you know, plays really well into that. And one of the other things to keep in mind, and and it's been a long a long time since I did this, but it, it is actually true. You know, in, injecting. Uh, for for contrast angiography or something like that, one and a half mLs a second is is absolutely sufficient. You know, I mean that's that is you really don't want to go over two, and and this is really true in you know a wide range of the patient population, and hand injecting, uh, it is extremely easy to hand inject faster than two mLs a second. So one and a half mLs a second is not that rapid. Um, and, and again, you, you can do that in a really easy hand injection um, uh, so well. And so anyway, anyway I, I think that's kind of a good, good way to kind of, let's bring this around, uh, talk about that. Let's just kind of to review right here. So uh, James going to get you to, kind of pitch in on this as well. So it would appear to me, based on what, what I've heard you say, is that uh, 
part of the considerations that went into uh, UT Southwestern's considering um, the use of gadapiclinol VUA uh, in their patient population uh, is because of the top-level characteristics of the agent being macrocyclic, high stability, high relaxivity, and a uh, greater effectiveness at a much lower dose. I mean, is that That's right. a fair yeah. summary of what you guys looked at and in this consideration? That's that's definitely correct. Yep. It's a good way to put it. I uh, want to thank you, uh, Jean, for taking your time uh, this evening to uh, speak with us, to sit with us on this podcast. Kristen, as always, it's, it's a pleasure. Any oh, it's, parting know, thoughts from you? The best part of this is Jeannie tonight. No, Bill, you are fantastic as well, always. No, these are always just a blast. So, Jeannie, thank you so much for, for joining us. My computer just went completely. Am I still with you guys? We can hear you. Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. No, Jeannie, it's been a, a pleasure. I do, oh. You know, everything's good. I'm sorry. Can you edit that out for me? <laughs> sorry. No, I, I have a few computers. No, no, we'll leave it in. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. I know it's part of our bloopers and blunders over three years. Um, Jeannie, no, you're fantastic, and I appreciate you being on with us very, very much. Um, Bill and I always appreciate it when we have nice people like you with us. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you all both again. And uh, we want to thank you guys out there for listening. I know we've got uh, quite a few people now subscribing well into the 20 plus thousand subscribers. And we just couldn't be more uh, happy and honored that uh, you tend to candidly enough to subscribe to these things for us. We we enjoy doing them. I want to again thank uh, Bracco Diagnostics for their support by an unrestricted educational grant. And so we will be back at some point with another MRI cast. So until then, have a good rest of your day unless you have other plans. We are out of here. You're just going to have to get used to it. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics.
been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Brocco Diagnostics. Music